A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name's Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Molly Hudson of The Times, Glenn Moore, women's football columnist for World Soccer, and by Anne-Marie Batson, the writer and broadcaster. England's only win since the World Cup was in Portugal, in front of a few hundred fans. There'll be 90,000 at Wembley on Saturday for the visit of Germany. It's a huge platform for the women's game, a match of real importance. Is this England squad, team and manager capable of making the most of the opportunity? What do you think, Molly? I think it's the biggest question of the week. It's the first question. It's a huge moment for the women's game. Everyone you speak to, whether it's Phil Neville, the manager, whether it's the players, whether it's former players, it's about history. It's iconic. It's such a big moment. But ultimately, I think for us to really capitalise on it the best that we can, we need to win the game. And Phil spoke about the fact that almost you need to forget everything else surrounding it and just focus on the game. And we probably haven't been in the best form. There's been a dip since the World Cup and part of that is understandable and part of it's probably dragged on a little bit longer than some of us would have expected or maybe Phil would have expected. You would like to think there's no motivation needed for a game this big. Any World Cup hangover, this is the perfect tonic to that, surely. Playing in front of, you know, nearly 90,000 at Wembley. So I think, yes, we can win the game if we play to the best of our ability, if we can get back to that. You know, you look at the team that beat Norway so comfortably and we've looked unrecognisable compared to that in the games that we've played after the World Cup. So if we can get back to that form, then of course we can win. But I think if we just need to perform, the performance is the biggest thing. I don't think it matters if we draw, even if we lose, if we can genuinely look back and say it's a really good performance. But if it isn't, you've got 90,000 people and they're not going to be too happy. Because mm. it's a bit of a cliche, but it is a test of character more than anything else, isn't it? You know, we know the talent's there. Can that talent be replicated in the biggest occasion? Well, we'll find out, won't we? I mean, it's, um, it's a bigger game because it's five years since the last game. If they played there every year, it would be less of a big deal, I guess, and because it's sold out, of course. Um, the last game actually proved highly significant because... It, Germany beat Mark Sampson's England very, very comfortably. And after that, Mark completely changed his philosophy of the way they played. Far less attacking, created this um, counter-attacking team. 
you know, it decided not to go toe-to-toe with the bigger bigger teams, having done that in Germany, been exposed, and ended up getting to the semi-final of the World Cup and indeed beating Germany in the third-place playoff. So it worked out very well then, um, but expectations are higher. You know, I think if England turn up Wembley and park the bus and try <coughs> and hit on the counter-attack, that's not going to go down very well. There is expectation to put on a show for 90,000 people. Now the problem becomes, Germany aren't as good as they were five years ago. There's no doubt about that. But that means they've also got something to prove. They've had a bad World Cup, are following a bad Euros, a change of manager, obviously just before the World Cup. They're missing quite a few players, but um, they're cruising qualifications. So this is a big game for them as well. So it's not they, they won't just be turning up to be beaten. It's going to be difficult. Mm. Phil Nell's picked an experienced squad. Um, I think it's only four uh, under 23 is that understandable given the circumstances? Yeah, I think so. Given what just Glenn said, I think the significance, we forget this is a friendly, but at the same time, it doesn't feel like a friendly at all. We know that the history between these two countries when it comes to football, there's going to be a lot of that. So I, I think it was right for him to choose a more experienced squad. I know it's the same squad that will be going to the, the Czech Republic as well, and he'll probably rotate it more for that particular game. But it does make perfect sense that he's going for a more experienced squad. And as Glenn mentioned, the team that played in 2014, I believe, some of those players are going to probably play in this game, like Lucy Bronze was in that game and Steph Horton was played in that match as well. So they're going to bring that experience on Saturday. It's got a bit of a difficult balancing act between producing an England team with half an eye on a GB Olympic team. Do you think the Olympic team is actually influencing his thinking now for the England team? It is partly because you look at the squad for the Brazil and Portugal games and he purposely made sure that he had like 20 players because the Team GB squad is just 18. Now, a couple of us journalists were looking the other day of what would our 18 be? And when you look at the talents that the Scotland team have, that Wales have, Northern Ireland have, actually it's a really, really difficult task to pick 18 players, Um, particularly when you want to make sure that part of that then has to be players that can play in other positions if you get injuries because it's such a small squad. So I think part of that is, yes, he's encouraging players to be adaptable. We've seen Lucy Bronze play midfield. He's talked about Leah Williamson possibly playing as a holding midfielder um, and can also play at fullback. So that gives him the opportunities if he choose to take those players. But I think, you know, first and foremost, he's, he's got this massive game to look at. And then almost once he's passed that hurdle then he can experiment more and think past that, I guess. Mm. No Frank Kirby, um, something which Emma Hayes actually is pretty happy about. Uh, that gives a chance to Lauren Hemp. Um, what are you looking for for someone like that? Seize the opportunity. I mean, one of the things that I know Phil's picked an experienced squad, I can understand why he's picked an experienced squad, but sometimes young players play with a lack of fear that actually becomes a benefit. Which we've seen in the men's team. We've seen that a lot with the men's team. They haven't had all the hangovers, all the problems of the past and so on. They've gone into it fresh. So hopefully Lauren will bring that, that freshness, that you know, wanting to seize the day and not thinking, what if? Um, but you know, looking to get beyond the German defence. And Germany do have problems in defence. They've got quite a lot of players missing. It's the one area of the team they look a bit weak with the squad. I mean, there are several players out. Um, and even before they had to sort of experiment a bit at the back, they're not producing as many defenders as they were. So to, to seize the opportunity, really. Mm. With England, um, you look at that side, um, it seems to me, as a, almost like, as an outsider looking in, that there isn't the same friction between club and country that there is in the men's game. Um, Emma Hayes was, was really stressing the fact that England have a duty of care to her players. Do you understand that? 
I do understand uh, where she's coming from. Emma Hayes has been very vocal about that when it comes to England duty. She wants her players to be protected. Now, I'd assume I'd assume that'd be the same for any of the club managers in the in the FA WSL. But the demand is going to grow, and I think that's where you're going to have to think of the bigger picture. As the more demand grows, to see more of the players coming through the system and having the opportunity, like Lauren Hemp, for example, to be part of the England squad. How is Phil going to manage that relationship? with the managers because people are falling more and more in love with the Lionesses as we know 90,000 this weekend. Mm. We want that momentum to continue. We want young players to get that opportunity. How is Phil going to explain that to the club managers that he'll want to pick certain players but also mindful of the fact of their role in the WSL as well? I think in this case fans obviously involved as well. Um, it's Germany at Wembley in front of 90,000 people. If you felt you were fully fit you want to play um, but she's not been fully fit for quite a long time now I mean she wasn't during the World Cup and you know she needs games and needs sharpness but needs to be managed those, those um, injuries so yeah I think it's the case of the players and the, the management yeah and you know you need Kirby fit for the end of the season for Chelsea and indeed for England for the Olympics and for the World Cup you know it's, this is one game in the build up to it let's look at almost like the symbolic importance of the game you know we've, we you know, we're brought up as you know, it's always every boy's dream to play at Wembley is it now Every girl's dream. Yes, I think it. I think it can be, and we've seen a lot of grassroots initiatives and things that are trying to capitalise on the back of the World Cup. And what well, now for young children? They can see it. They can watch it. You know, whether they're there or not there, it's on TV. It's sold out. The atmosphere's there, and that's what's so important now. That yes, we get the steps below that we get the grassroots so that we get the next generation of England talent coming through but it's also that you know this is a professional game now and this is what the players deserve and this should be normal now yes obviously we're not going to get 90,000 at Wembley every week and in the same way that we're not going to get you know 30,000 at the head-to-head every week in the league but you have to be aiming towards that that has to be the end goal and hopefully that's now the progression and the pathway is there for, for young girls to watch that and think, yeah, I want to do that. And that is actually possible now. Mm. I was very struck when Tony Duggan spoke about pushing herself recklessly through injury. She's coming back. How important is she as a symbolic figure to the rest of the game? Well, she's been a big, big impact in terms of, you know, obviously in Barcelona, which created a lot of attention at the time. Um, because it's Barcelona, um, and now playing Atletico, uh, yeah, and at her best, fully fit, she brings a lot to the side, yeah, and can, can be a very important player. Um, yeah, and indeed, competition, there's a lot of competition. England are very strong in those wide attacking areas, up to a point. They obviously tend to be more century now at club level, and um, as indeed some of us. Um, so she's an important player, if fit, and there's, you know, we have good attacking players. Um, problem Phil's had recently is actually getting them all fit at the right time. Mm. Phil has talked about international football being about a 10 or 15% step up. In what way? Is it tactically, technically, temperamentally? I think one of the things that the team, as it is, they don't get to play with each other as regularly as he would want them to do. And I think that's, a, that's one thing. So when it comes to England, you have to, to step it up a level. And the end of the day, playing for England is the top of the level of football. It's that top pyramid, isn't it? Being selected to play for your country, you're one of the best in the country to be part of that team. So for him, he's looking for that extra 10% all the time. And, and you talked about earlier about younger players coming through with no fear. We talk, you know, we talk about Lauren Hemp and, and other players like that. They will bring that 10% because it's an opportunity for them to shine. 
Hmm. When you look at Phil Neville now, in this week building up to probably the biggest game of his tenure in, in many ways, to where when he started, how has he developed as a coach and a manager, both as a public figure and also as a private figure with, a, with the players? I think in terms of off the pitch, I think even he would admit he's probably been surprised how quickly the game has grown. Um, obviously, when he came in, it was a big statement whether that was right or wrongly because of his past involvement in women's football. The fact that Phil Neville is such a, a legend of men's football would want to come and manage the women's team. That was a statement in itself. And I think what he's done is, whether you like him or not or whether you like his coaching or not, he's attracted people that would never have watched women's football to now watch it. And he's he's talked about his friends and people that he used to play with that have watched women's football for the first time off the back of that. And, you know, in that respect, he's had to deal with more media. He's had to deal with more criticism than maybe even he would expect because it's still comparatively, it's nothing like the media attention that Gareth Southgate gets. You know, they lost one game and there were massive double-page spreads criticising his management. Phil hasn't had that. And I don't think we're at a stage for that yet. But he has had criticism, and I think that's part of his role. He's learning that that's part of part of his job, and it's part of women's football now that it's our job to criticise him, to criticise the team. And, you know, it's not coming out of a, a negative place. It's just wanting the best for the team, for the sport. Mm. On the pitch, I think you could say that he's developed his philosophy. He, he believes he has them playing the way he wants them to play. There's definitely a lot more possession-based football playing it out from the back than there was under Mark Sampson, who, as Glenn said, after that Germany game, really transformed the side into a more counter-attacking team, which worked. Um, whether Phil's philosophy works, ultimately it's whether you get the medals and you get the trophies at the end of it. And that's now what he's building towards with the Olympics and the Euros. Because mm. you know, the reality is, Glenn, that you don't get the results, you get the criticism. Is he too oversensitive to that? Well, I think he's certainly less wide-eyed than, than he was when he came into it. Um, I mean, it's all very well saying we want to be criticised, you know, like the men's game and so on. But then you've got to be prepared to take it when you are. Um, winning, winning solves all a manner of problems. Yeah, in, in all manner of stuff. Um, in, in every sport, I mean, there's a feature of the cricket this month about uh, the New Zealand tour, and um, uh, the much more disciplined tour than the previous one, where they lost the Ashes in Australia. And uh, Tuffman did well, and uh, the manager, Graham, the captain Graham Gooch, felt it was because it's more disciplined. Tuffman says he did, behaved exactly the same. In both tours, it's just one of them who was successful, one of them who wasn't. And, you know, winning covers a multitude of sins. Phil needs results, you know, particularly this week on the weekend. He's been a job now, what is it, 21 months, I think, 20 months? Um, yet he still feels like he's on trial. Um, a bit like we don't quite know, is, has it been a good move or not? He's brought uh, quite a lot to the job. Um, he's certainly his status and uh, professionalism and, and work ethic, raising the profile. Are the team any better than they were? Two years ago, not sure. Uh, you have to bear in mind the opposition have also improved. So, you know, you have to keep progressing. And you have to keep progressing quicker than the other teams. Saturday will be a very good test of exactly where we are, to be honest, against a good opposition. I mean, we're obviously not as good as America. Um, we are potentially as good as everybody else. Um, but it's a matter of converting that potential into performance, which hasn't been the case since the World Cup. Mm. You look at the, the US team, Amory. Again, what are the characteristics that England can learn from? 
Uh, the characteristics that England can learn from, I think, is keep fighting until we hear the final whistle. I think um, with the with Team USA, they just fight for every single minute, the minute they step onto that pitch. Mm. And they're not afraid to, for the want of a set of better words, carve teams open and apply that pressure the minute the first whistle goes. And I think with England sometimes, there isn't necessarily a plan B if they go behind. What is what is the next plan? What do they need to do to regroup and try and get an equaliser or gone to win the games? And I think that's where they need to just up their level on that side of things. That's something they can definitely learn from the American side and be bold and be brash. Not necessarily be arrogant, but be confident in your abilities and show, look, we deserve to be here. We're going to beat you significantly when we play you. Mm. They've got the belief that comes from winning, obviously. Yeah. Plus, also, they showed against France and against England, they are prepared to do the ugly side, you know, athleticism, you know to yeah. do the hard work and, and not try and you know, dominate the game, but we'll put a dig in, you know, go to plan B. Mm. What are they like as journalists, the players, to deal with? Are they open and, and refreshingly so? The England players. Mm. I think it's changed in the two or three years that I've been doing it, I think suddenly people are a lot more aware of what they're saying. They're a lot more aware that this is now a professional game and therefore you're going to have media officers next to the players when they talk and it's not going to be, you know, you can just ring a player up now and speak to them. It's got, it's getting more and more professional. There's good side and bad sides to that because part of what makes the women's game so good is that fans can get very close to the players. The accessibility factor. Yeah. Um, and the accessibility is probably shrinking for the media because it's now more structured and it's harder to speak to the players and probably get more of an honest reflection. They're, they're more aware of what they're saying. But I think that's, in a way, a sign of the game getting better, getting more professional because mm. it's like that in the men's game now and that, that's something that just is part and parcel of the growth of the game, I think. Mm. And you know, I, I, I applauded you know, from afar... Casey Stoney's stance, for instance, on Leah Galton, where you know, there's an obvious attempt there, conscious attempt to protect a player from an environment that perhaps she's not ready for yet. Mm. I, mean, I think the game or society generally in the last 10 years has made huge strides in recognising mental health. Um, yeah, and the, obviously it's not quite so easy to recognise as, as you know, a physical um, issue, but um, the fact that you know, they need to look after players. I mean, you think where we were... We're, Dan Collinmore and John Gregory 10, years, 10, 15 years ago. I mean, it's, uh, it's in like another age. It's better like the concussion debate as well. I mean, that's also changed. And you have to look after the individuals and you're looking at someone who could potentially have a very long and successful career and has to be ready to, to cope with the pressure that comes with that. Yeah. We have players now through the medium of the Champions League, you know, people like Lucy Bronze, um, you know, at big clubs, big European clubs, how much of a role do they play almost as mentors themselves within the, the England squad? I think they play a huge role within the England squad, particularly because they play for teams that have already mentioned about Lucy Plon playing for Lyon and Tony Duggan, obviously, at Atletico Madrid. They can bring a different perspective. They can bring a different understanding of what they learn in their teams to apply into the into the England squad. I think I read somewhere... Um, the Leon team, Lucy's noticed that with the England team, they're very chatty, very friendly, very together. But with the Leon team, it's very much everyone at the end of training goes off and does separate things and they only tend to meet up every once in a while. So it's 
it's understanding, I guess, that teams are different from each other or squads are different from each other, but also understanding that, you know, what she's learning at Leon, she could definitely apply that when she's in the England squad. Mm. And the sort of knock-on effect of that is if you've got any sort of inferiority complex and you think, oh, you know, Leon, a great team in the world, if you're actually speaking to someone who's part of that and understand that you can actually match them, that's got to help in the, in the longer term. I think Lucy Bronze specifically is a massive role model for not only young girls but every English footballer because you look at what she's done. She started out from the bottom and she gradually grew. She won everything she could in England and then she went to Leon and the Leon players who were the best in the world were going, hang on a minute, who's this new girl that's, that's faster than us, she's stronger than us, she works harder than us? And that's the kind of level that Lucy Bronze brings. And you speak to any of her coaches and you know they'll give you a glowing reference of her, her character. You look at the big games at the World Cup, she st- stood up to the plate and she was the player that you looked at when you needed England to be better. And I think, you know, arguably that's the reason why Phil attempted to play her in midfield because you just want her on the ball as much as you can. You want her to have the biggest influence she can on the game because that's how important she is. And, you know, I was reading something earlier about Nikita Paris and how important she said Lucy has been in, in her move across to Leon because she's the example of what you can do and what an English player can do and learn the language and everything like that. And she's just leading the way in that respect, mm. I think. That's the natural evolution of the game, isn't it, Glenn? Yes, I mean... Um it's, it's, it's interesting that Leon has signed three other English players since. Yeah, so yeah, had, had Lucy yeah, not been successful at Leon, yeah, my other English players don't travel. Yeah, um, as was, was thought for the case for many years about the men players, and now obviously a lot of them are travelling, yeah, mm. particularly young ages. Um, and yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see where we go in terms of. I mean, I notice the American League is going to have a, like a scope to spend a bit more money on one or two players because they're losing Sam Kerr. Uh, at the end of the season, we don't know where to yet. But um, and yeah, it's the top players, the market is increasing. The opportunities are going to increase for them, uh, and that's obviously incentive for other players to get to that level. Mm. Got the Champions League draw on Friday yeah. for the last eight. Um, would you say that Lyon are still favourites? Oh, 100 percent, one hundred percent. So the short answer, I think. I think they they've set such a high standard, and and they are seen as the, the as uh, Mole said that they are. One of well is the best team in the world. I think they are definitely the favourites. I couldn't even say who I would pick for my second choice actually at the moment because they are such a strong force. So yes, they mm. are. Because some of the stats there are ridiculous. On that, um, Ada uh, Hegerberg, two hundred and sixty-six club games, two hundred and seventy-four goals. That's ridiculous. Yeah, I think I think I wrote a piece this week talking about the fact that yes, Leon are the best at the moment, but. I'd, I think everyone else is closing in on them. I think you look at somebody like Hegerberg and she's won everything four times over at 24, I think she is now. Mm. And you wonder when those players are going to want a new challenge. Lucy Bronze's contract is up at the end of the year and she's talked about the fact that she might want to return to England. So I think they're not going to be dominant forever, but I think this season it's very hard to look past them. Mm. Do you think the, the WSL has got the potential to be the best league in the world? Yes, sort of short to medium term. I mean, it's this old question, how do you quantify the best league? I mean, it could be argued, if you talk about across the league standards in terms of facilities and depth, you could argue the WSL is already 
arguably the best. I mean, the facilities are certainly better than they are in the States. Most, uh, most clubs, I mean, there are exceptions in the States. I mean, Portland would be an obvious example. But the general level, um, you talk about the level of depth of teams, and I guess the NWSL will be higher. Uh, the best individual team playing France. Um, but across the depth, you know, the WSL is progressing pretty quickly. We come to the age-old quandary, bums on seats or feet on terraces, um, and the weekend coming up, the women's football weekend is obviously going to be an important factor in that, and that's what they need to get onto next. Um, but there are signs there with good marketing. Lewis had a thousand on the weekend, yeah, for Continental Cup game. In awful yeah. weather. In awful weather, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there are signs of in places it can be done. Mm. We look at the the Champions League um, as an exemplar. What does that say about Manchester City that they're not in that draw because they lost? To yeah, I've got to say, I'm really surprised by that. Um, I thought they would have gone quite deep into into the competition, Man City mm. women, because of um, the, the squad that they have. And, I, and I'm sure for Nick Cachet's team, it's been a massive blow for them. But in answer to your question, it shows the strength of the Champions League and the teams that are playing part of that. And Arsenal women have got a real challenge now to be seen as a team that could go deep into the competition as the last remaining English team in the draw. The men get the good draws of City. <laughs> Women get much tougher draws. Yeah, that's yeah. a really yeah. tough draw. True. I think one of the, the, the great stories that this Champions League has been Glasgow City, that you know, winning on penalties against Bromby. You know, they come from a league which they dominate. Does it beg the question that with the sort of expansion of the domestic game, that we could, I know FIFA would probably kick up about it, but almost get a British league beginning to develop. Is that viable? I don't think so. I think, firstly, we have to congratulate Glasgow City because two weeks ago they won their league title in a park away at Motherwell and now you're one of the eight best teams in Europe. That's astonishing. There were some very good performances, particularly from Lee Alexander and we know how good a goalkeeper she is. But... I think you have to look closer to home and you have to look at the Scottish League to improve their strength and depth because having a British League wouldn't help. You know, Glenn talked about it there. If we can't get bums on seats when they're really close together, how are you expecting fans to travel to mm. Glasgow to, to see a game? It's about the facilities. It's making sure that, you know, that's still a part-time team. I think one of the players tweeted that, oh, she just won a Champions League game and now she's got to fly home and go to work the next day. And that's the kind of thing we need to be sorting out because, yes, there are teams like Manchester City that are a lot more professional that have been knocked out because of the draw. But on paper, that's the top eight teams in Europe and they're part-time and they've won their league in a park. That's, that's unacceptable. Mm. And it's not a slight on them because they've done nothing wrong and there's nothing more the club can really do. It's about the Scottish FA and ensuring that there's that standard there to keep on challenging them. Because how good? imagine how good they could be. These are part-time players. Imagine how good they could be if they were training the same hours that Manchester City and Arsenal are. Because mm. if you look at you know, some of the other names in the draw, Bayern, Wolfsburg, PSG, Barcelona, that is you know, the who's who of mm. European football, isn't it? Increasingly looking that way, the... Um if you go back 10 years, you've got Frankfurt, you've got LSK, you've got um, uh, the Umea, you've got a whole series of um, clubs that basically were uh, only, uh, female-only clubs. Uh, now, the move towards European football, as indeed it's happening in America, is for clubs associated with men's teams, the bigger men's teams to come through. I mean, um, 
Got Real Madrid coming into it, haven't we? Well, yes, they're fighting relegation at the moment, aren't they? Tack on. Um, but uh, they've been linked with Kerr as well. But um, clearly they would like to stay up and then become Real Madrid. Uh, and that's where we're going. Juventus, uh, obviously, they've gone out early on in the Champions League both years, but they're doing well in Italy. I mean, so increasingly the big European clubs are getting involved and that's where we're headed. Mm. In that context then, um, Amory, um, where do Arsenal fit into the jigsaw? Yes. <laughs> oh, oh dear, that's a tough one. <laughs> I'd like to think in the centrepiece of the jigsaw, um, but I don't think that's going to be the case, to be honest with you. Look, um, Arsenal have got a strong, they have got a good squad, they've got a strong team of players, barring any injury, touchwood. So uh, they will, you know, they will give in a decent performance, a good performance to, and they, you know, Joe Montemurro want to go deep into that competition. Where they're going to end up, I've got no idea, and I would not want to make mm. a prediction. But it, it's going to be challenging because of the names that you've just reeled off that are still left in the draw. Okay. I think personally, the only team they should fear is Lyon. I think any of the other teams, I think. On their day, you've got Vivian Miedema, who's probably the best striker in the competition or arguably the world right now. You've got players like Jordan Nobbs and Kim Little, who are genuinely world-class. Leah Williamson, who's improving with nearly every match she plays. And, you know, if they all have a good game, and as Anne-Marie said, if they can keep fit, which is the most important thing, then I don't see why they can't give any of those teams a good game. But you look at Leon, they've just it's the experience. You know, Arsenal haven't been in the competition for a number of years now. So it's, it's managing that. They've got quite a small squad. It's a very high-quality squad, but it's quite small. So, yeah, I, I don't think they should fear anyone, only Leon, really. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'd put Arsenal and Wolfsburg as the two clubs most likely to test Leon. And although Arsenal haven't got much European experience, I mean, in Plaza, you know, the Dutch players have played in the World Cup final, the European final, and won the Euros. I mean, people like Kim Little have got a huge amount of experience. I mean, they have got experienced players, albeit not in that context so much. And I think that's that's the thing that I'm thinking about, is that lack of experience mm. of playing Europe may And obviously two leg, two leg games are different. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Different mentality. Yeah. 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 You mentioned injuries there, Molly. I'd just like to look at a broader issue about the incidence of injury, serious injury in, in the women's game. You know, we've had the latest uh, IF Mannion with um, another ACL. What can the women's game do almost as part of its duty of care to players? Do we need more research into why these injuries are occurring? Of course. I think it almost feels like a horrible part of the course to be amazing. You have to have a really bad knee injury. I mean, you, you look at Lucy Bronze for an example. Um, people like Frank Kirby have been plagued by injuries. Um, and I, it's, it is about research. It's, you know, we look now that there isn't really a, a female women's football boot. And I, I did a feature a while ago and spoke to a surgeon that talks about the fact that the way a woman's knee and their leg is actually made up means that they go into tackles at a slightly different angle to men, which makes them higher risk of getting an ACL injury. And therefore, you need to counteract that. And they were talking about the idea of doing more work, making your knee stronger, whether that's in rehabilitation or whether that's just day-to-day in terms of training. But the biggest thing is research. We don't know how to combat that and we don't know how or what we could do to make that less likely because the research just hasn't been done. And yes, it will take a matter of time. We know that the game is quite newly professional, but it has to be one of the priorities because, as you say, it's... It's affecting people like Aoife Mannion. It's devastating for her because she'd got a big move to Manchester City and she was actually really growing into that role as fullback, particularly in the game that she did her injury, ironically. Mm. So, you know, 
we rightly praise the FA for the way they're promoting the women's game. Is this a tangible thing that they could do to maybe fund more research? FA, PFA, we do have pots of money lying around. I mean, as you suggested, they were down twist, they could sell that painting. Yeah. Uh, it's taken a huge amount of years to finally take um, the effect of heading the ball and Alzheimer's and uh, head injuries seriously. Um, hopefully it'll be a bit quicker to address this sort of thing. Uh, and indeed, the, and the clubs have a role. I mean, as players start earning decent money, they become valuable properties. You don't want that valuable property spending nine months on the sidelines. Mm. Um, so I think there's a role for all of them to come together. Um, probably involving... Uh, the US as well, maybe you know, uh, elsewhere across Europe. There has been some research been going on, but, but not an awful lot because obviously the game's been amateur for so many years. Mm. There's not really been that body of um, medical data to, to look at uh, to start with. But yeah, clearly it's something that needs to be addressed. And um, yeah, there's specificities to the women's game. Indeed, look across other sports perhaps, you know, athletics, rugby and so on. Hockey perhaps. Yeah. 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 Also, I think the, the, the sort of social significance of women's football is, you know, I think, being shown through in the work at West Ham, for instance, about cancer awareness. You know, Kenza Darley did a, a really good piece with Susie Rack about her background, very emotive and very emotionally engaging. Is that part of almost the remit of the, 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 the modern club, is to actually be aware of its social significance? Very much so. And in fact, that's what Jack Sullivan has said as the owner of, of West Ham Ladies. He's been very clear that he sees the club having a responsibility to educate those and raise awareness about certain social issues around us. And he's, you know, the work that they do with breast cancer care, I think has been fantastic. We've seen the pink shirts, I believe, have completely sold, sold out, out and yeah. they've had to order more, which I think is significant in itself. So I applaud Jack Sullivan for saying that because he's been very strong in his words and it's something that the club believe in and the players are bought into as well. And I'd like to see one or two more clubs actually follow their lead. Clubs are getting a platform now. You know, we've got the Women's Football Weekend coming up 16th, 17th November. The first North London derby at uh, the new Tottenham Stadium. Um, give me a sense, Molly, of how well you think Spurs have done in terms of developing very quickly. They've done really well. I think they had quite a big player turnover, um, which has undoubtedly helped them. Obviously, they've become more professional from where they were last season. They almost flew under the radar because Manchester United did so well in the Championship because obviously they were already a professional outfit in that league. And they excelled and Tottenham were almost quietly sneaking up behind them and, and got promoted. And they've been a really good addition to the league. You look at um, the results they've had. I mean, that first day at Stamford Bridge, that's such a huge occasion for the football club, for those players that a lot of them hadn't played in a stage that big. And they only lost 1-0 and it was a really tight game and they showed how mature they were and the work that they've put in. You know, they, they got the win against West Ham at the Olympic Stadium. It's not like they've been not used to these sort of stadiums. They've, they've really risen to the occasion. And you can tell when you speak to the managers how much it means to them, how, you know, the managers have been there from the start of that process. I mean, Karen Hills is talking about the fact that she used to have to, you know, get the meals for the players and do all of that sort of thing because... That was the one job fits all back then for the women's team. And now it's a professional surrounding and it's so nice to see some of those players come through and experience that that probably thought they would never get the chance to be a professional footballer. Mm. A lot of the attention, Glenn, will be focused on Anfield and the Merseyside derby. In a sense, is that almost an unfair burden on Liverpool as they currently are? The bottom of the WSL, struggling badly with a pretty callow squad. 
Um, do you feel for Vicky Jepson? Do people understand the sort of issues that she's having to deal with? Probably not, because obviously Liverpool have a great name um, and the, the, the men's success is sort of front even sharper relief. Um, the women's side does look as if the club got a bit bored after a couple of years of success and just, you know, thought, oh, fine, we've done that bit. And drift, let it drift while other teams overtook them. Uh, and she's ended up inheriting this very difficult situation. I mean, it could be that playing a derby at Anfield is what they need. You know, mm. I mean, you know, it's funny how these things work out. Um, and whilst Everton have a good season, you know, it's not like they're playing Arsenal you know, or Manchester City. Uh, or Chelsea, so it's certainly a winnable game in that respect. Um, but you see how many people turn up because playing out of Tranmere has not helped in terms of attendances. Um, so it, it could be the spot they need, but obviously if it goes horribly wrong uh, and they lose like 4-0, um, great day for Everton, obviously. Um, but then a very tough one for Liverpool. Mm. Can a club of Liverpool's magnitude afford to be relegated? Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't want them to be relegated, but the club of that magnitude, can they afford to be relegated? No, I don't think so. I don't think so of, that, of the, the name Liverpool itself and what it carries. Um, but Glenn is right. I think the you know the club itself, in terms of the men's side, you know they're in the stratosphere anyway. Is, they've kind of fallen away in supporting the women's team, and that has now had a, a massive detrimental effect. On the one hand, I like I was thinking if they. If relegation happens, then it's a chance for them to rebuild and regroup and work their way back up. But at the same time, they don't deserve that because it's, situ- it's stuff that's happened to them that's outside of their control. Mm. So it's a, I think it's a tough one to answer. I don't want to see anybody relegated from the WSL, but the unfortunate fact is one team needs to go down into the championship. Mm. It would be interesting. I mean, if they did go down, does that become the kick of the backside that the hierarchy decide we can't mm. have this happen, let's really invest? Or do they well, think... Especially at a time when Manchester United... Or do they think, oh, let's yeah. just... We've sort of, been relegated now, yeah, so there's let's just no ignore point. It completely. Yeah, mm. which would be disappointing. Mm. Were you surprised they lost to Aston Villa in the Conti Cup? No, because Aston Villa are, are really good in the Championship. They've got a really good group of players. They had an excellent transfer window. They brought in some players that have played in the WSL. They brought in Melissa Johnson, who's been in incredible form for them. Um, and I think for Liverpool, the the key is you look at the players they've lost. They've lost internationals. They've lost Alex Greenwood, Siobhan Chamberlain, Sophie Ingle. Players like that you can't just replace overnight and they haven't even tried. They've just sort of put so much emphasis on youth and it's a really difficult situation for Vicky Jepson. and I hope that she gets the time that she deserves because ultimately it's not her fault the situation she's walked into. But as Glenn says, you do feel as though Anfield could be the turning point one way or the other in that situation. Mm. Again, looking at a wider point, Glenn, does the women's game help itself in some of the scheduling problems that it obviously has? You know, you had you know, Chelsea, uh, over 4,000 for uh, the Arsenal game. Uh, I haven't got a home game for five weeks. <laughs> Something's got to be wrong somewhere. Well, it's partly because of the way the draw felt with the Continental Cup. Obviously, they have played matches and they've been away. And that is always a risk when you've got um, cup, cup draws. Uh, I think Manchester United went a long time without a home game um, mm. a year or two ago. Um, but the point, and the got point the applies. As well. But the point applies, yes. I mean, scheduling has, be, has been a big issue in the women's game for as long as I can remember. Um, and it's still taking... Yeah, it's improved. There's no doubt about that. Um, I think it's the best it's been. It's definitely improved. 
It's a bit like the mess with county cricket. You never quite know what's going on when. <laughs> um, and it has improved, but basically they do need a bigger league with more fixtures than you can have home away, home away, home away and just drop the cup games into it. Uh, the argument for the Continental Cup, the, group, the idea of a group stage is it gives you a chance for the experiment, maybe play with younger players and so on. But the argument against it is it just clocks up the fixture list, particularly the way it's being played now. Maybe it should be better being played at the start of the season. I think like, they did one year. Yeah, get some of those games out of the way. Or just uh, play knockout. I think there's a place for the competition. Yeah. Um, you know, teams aren't winning it. I mean, Arsenal, Manchester City have obviously enjoyed it the last few years. And it does give a chance for the smaller you know, Division 2 teams to play Division 1 teams. We'll have a championship against WCL now. Um, and test themselves. And United found it, Manchester United found it quite handy last year. The groups are very odd in terms of the structure. I mean, there's Liverpool, the only WCL team in their group. Mm. Uh, Leicester, the only championship team in their group. Um, so there are obviously issues with it, and scheduling has always been a problem. Mm. Yeah, it is in most sports, isn't it? Look, you know, Liverpool at the moment, the men's right side. Now, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you can't have too many games as well if you're successful. Only if you're successful. Yeah. Well, Emma Hayes, you know, we, we keep mentioning her as almost like this voice from the side, but she's right in the middle of it. She says, "Look, scrap it." I'm with Glenn with this one. Actually, I think we should keep it, but it, it has problems with it that need looking at quite quickly. And I think this, I think it's the opportunity for the FA to look at it and, and look at the schedule coming up for, you know, uh, 2020, 2021, and see how it could work. Because I think it is a competition that people do actually enjoy, like the Carabao mm. Cup on the men's side. So I think it'd be a shame to get rid of it. It just needs reworking, like Glenn suggested, having it at the beginning of the season or having look at the group stages. I don't think, I think you're right, having, you know, there's an imbalance in there somewhere, but it is an opportunity to use Team Bs or younger squad players to, so they can get that experience. It'll be a shame to get rid of it. Because there's no cup at all in the States, but obviously they, they've, most of the sports have a slightly different system. But because of the playoff system, most of the teams stay involved to quite, you know, a lot of teams stay involved to quite the end of the season. Mm. You know, I mean, obviously we haven't got that here. I mean, the top three will pull away at some point. And, but if one of the other teams is still involved in the Cups, then it gives them something to play for. Mm. When you look at, it's a development process right across the board. UEFA have just, announced a coach mentoring program with celebrated coaches like Joe Montemuro, Hope Powell, basically using their experiences for a much wider good. Is that a significant initiative, do you think? I think it's a positive. I think every little helps in that respect. I think from what I've read about it, it sounds good with the fact that these young coaches can come over and they can see you know, managers like Joe in their environment at club level and see what it takes day in, day out, because a lot of these coaches are coaches of national teams at youth level that won't be professional. They won't know the day-to-day day, day -day sort of running of a club as a manager. So I think that's a really great insight and anything we can do in that respect is a help. But I think it's difficult when this scheme is just women's football. Should we not be pushing female coaches into football generally that it feels a bit pigeonholed but I guess if you can help these young coaches come in to be the best in women's football then you see that they're then on the shortlist I mean we've seen Emma Hayes on the shortlist for men's football jobs we've seen Shelley Kerr the Hearts job um, I think she was like 33 to 1 at one point this week to get the Hearts job um, I wouldn't wish that on anyone by the way <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think I guess if it's going to help them get to the top of the women's game, then I'm all for it. It can only help, can't it? It can't be, yeah. can't be a hindrance. But to, to Molly's point, Glenn, the stat is only 3% of UEFA's qualified coaches, I think 190,000 of them, mm. are women. Wow. Yeah. Surprised by that? 
No, because I've done uh, quite a lot of coaching courses and there's normally about 18 blokes and one or two women, normally one, to be honest. Um, so I'm not surprised. Uh, some of the coach educators have been female. Um, but um, it, it's partly, it's role models, isn't it? It's, you know, you can't be what you can't see. Uh, so in that respect, as good as those sort of initiatives are in terms of getting people into it, you know, people like Jen Ludlow and Vicky Jepson and Kelly Chambers and Emma Hayes are the role models. Once you see women in the dugout doing the job, it normalises the situation. Mm. Yeah, okay. for men and women. Yeah, and there's a perception of opportunity, isn't there? I think there is very much a perception of opportunity which we need to keep pushing for because we need more women coaches in the game as well as in, in the men's game as well. Let's have it on, on both sides. So, yeah, absolutely. Mm. It's terrible. I mean, yeah, people appoint people who look like themselves. I mean, the same applies to with um, ethnic diversity. Mm. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, so therefore, it's, you, you do need certain initiatives to try and push people into those positions, but... Because mm. you know, we talk about acceptance in terms of you know, Sean, Messi, uh, Messi, <laughs> Messi Ellis being involved at a high level in the men's game in Europe in, in, in Champions League. I just want to end by looking at prize money in the FA Cup. To be perfectly honest, I was staggered to learn that a first round winner in the FA Cup, women's FA Cup, gets £850. I had to check the calendar. What day, you know, What year are we living in? <laughs> I think you speak to a lot of the clubs and even the Continental Cup, at times it costs more to put the games on than what they make. And that is unacceptable. I don't think anybody, or I'm certainly not going to sit here and say we should be asking for equal pay for our league teams because we're nowhere near that in terms of attendance, in terms of marketing, in terms of what the teams bring in. But there has to be an acceptable level of finance something that makes the FA Cup worthwhile for these clubs to even put it on because there are such big disparities between teams now. It's, it's even harder probably in the women's FA Cup than it is the men's for a, a lower league team to come through. So then you're, you know, you're talking about, what do you say, £360? £850. £860. And that's if they get through. Which is actually because the way the draw structure is extremely difficult. Yeah. Well, anyone gets into the set of the third round. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Mm, mm. So if you look across the board, are we at a point where the women's game, well, give, give you this one, Anne-Marie, to finish, that the, the FA needs to actually start exploiting the mystique of the FA Cup? Oh, very much so. Very much so. Because people in England love the FA Cup whether it's men's or the women's game. And I think it's, that's the opportunity to start exploiting it. While people, while you have their hearts and minds, now is the time to make sure that you exploit. I don't like, I don't know if I, I like the word exploit, but I, I'll use it. It's the time to look at avenues and ways of harnessing that power and the mystique to get more people on board. Mm. Well, as Molly said, no one expects equality, but we've got a right to expect fairness and common sense. Show them the money. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 